Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jake Pippin. We're at the Nicholson Library on Linfield University campus. It's June 9th, 2021. Jake. Jake. <laughs> I, I, I do too. Jake. <laughs> That's my own name. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, first question, biggest question, why wine? It's endlessly fascinating. It doesn't get old and it's, I don't know, it's fun. I mean, you know, I, I if I have to, there, there are a few jobs where you combine science and history and geology and travel and accounting <laughs> and spreadsheets, which I, I really like spreadsheets, but think to, and, and storytelling, you put all that into one and, and it's, it's wine. Like I don't, re, I mean, I'm sure other people say that about other industries, but this is my industry, so I, I certainly feel that it just is able to connect all of those dots in in a way that's just never gotten old and is just kind of continually fascinating um either looking forward or looking back mm -hmm. either either or and um you know it it why and it's i don't know it's just part of the heritage and culture here um or at least it has become that way in the last 50 years 60 years mm -hmm. um and to be part of that is exciting so take us through your kind of pre-wine life, uh, upbringing, education, where are you from and, and where did you grow up? Uh, so I, I grew up in Oregon. Uh, I grew up in, up the McKenzie River in a little area called Camp Creek, which is kind of just outside of Springfield, outside of Eugene. I always say I'm from Eugene because nobody knows where Camp Creek is, but every once in a while I'll meet somebody who's like, well, where up Camp Creek? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, here? And they're like, oh, cool, I grew up across the street, like, you know, <laughs> 20 years prior. I'm like, all right. Um, and, uh, but my, fa my family's from here. Actually, my family's from Yamhill. They grew up, my grandmother, my great grandmother was born in Newburgh and grew up off of Red Hills Road over, you know, so it's, I've always kind of had a connection to this area. Uh, my grandmother grew up out here. My dad spent a lot of time up here and then, you know, they moved to Eugene. So we grew up there and then um, went to Thurston High, uh, went to the U of O uh, and then left. Um, I, I had traveled a bit before, uh, mostly on the West Coast, and um, but I'd never been on a plane till I was like, however old you are in eighth grade. Um, and you know, I think about it, I've never been on a plane before 9-11, so I have no idea what that is like. And, um, but I, I left after college. Um, I guess people, you know, people do that, you know, I didn't go away for college, that wasn't really an option. And um, I, I didn't really have a plan. Like I thought I'd move to Portland. I thought I'd, you know, come up here. Um, but it just everything I kept finding. I was like, I don't know if I really want to do that. Like I, I need, I needed something that just kind of was very different than what I had experienced. Mm -hmm. And so I moved to New York, um, New York City. And I had gone once before, and I hated it. It was miserable. And if anybody's been to New York in August, like it, it is miserable. It's it's hot. It's sweaty. It smells. It's just, it's it's an awful city in August. And then you go 
any other time of the year and you're like, oh, this is actually pretty magical. This is, this is the bad that is just surrounded by a whole lot of good and it has this vibrant energy that just is a very different energy than, than the West Coast and Oregon. And that was really appealing. Um, you know, I, I, in school, I, I started off, uh, in college, I started off um, doing theater and wanting to you know, be a theater teacher. And I started to think about that. My dad's a teacher, my grandparents were teachers. And they're like, maybe don't be a teacher. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, it's very fulfilling, but you know, do you want, is that gonna let you do what you really wanna do? And I started to think about it, I was like, well, one, it's gonna be really hard to find a job as a theater teacher. Because, I mean, you, you budget cuts, I mean, it's like, oh, we'll just chop the arts first. And um, so I kind of pivoted and started uh, focusing on geography. And I've always really enjoyed maps. I've always really enjoyed, I, I know it's kind of cliche to say, but just National Geographic. It's like, what's going on in this? Like, I would read as a kid, and then um, I just, I, I like maps. I like, I like the, the cultural aspect of that. I never really wanted to get into the, um, like the cartography aspects, like that's fascinating. I'm just not good at that. Um, but I, then again, I was like, well, I can't be a social studies teacher because it's kind of the same way that the theater teacher goes. So I, I graduated from college and I just didn't really know what to do. So I had studied abroad in Vienna uh, in college and I spent about eight months over in Europe, went everywhere, but most of my time was spent in Vienna. And um, Vienna is one of the two major capital cities in the world that have vineyards in its city limits. So it was really easy to kind of go out and just go to a vineyard and see a vineyard. And you know, you go around Europe and they have a much more laissez-faire approach, not even laissez-faire, but just like welcoming approach to wine than we do in this country. So I, I kind of started to, you know, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll have dinner and wine and da 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 You go to Vienna and then, just started to kind of sink in more and more. And then I was like, oh, this kind of ties to storytelling and geography. And I started to kind of knit it together. Um, and once I came back, I realized I really liked wine. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm jumping around here. This is before I moved to New York. But my last year of college, um, I went and worked at Sweet Cheeks Winery. Um, I kind of hounded the winemaker uh, to hire me. And I remember I started in like April. And I was like, hey, I'm, I really want to do a harvest. I know nothing. And I read the wine Bible. So I just, I, I want to learn. And like the GM at the time was like, oh, no, we're not going to, like, they just I, just, I don't know if I got the runaround or I just wasn't persistent enough or, or what. But eventually, Mark hired me. And I did a harvest there. This was 2009. And um, then I started working in the tasting room. And then they're like, well, can you do the deliveries? And so I was like, sure. But I had class on Thursdays. So I was like, I just won't go to this class on Thursdays and try to make it work, because I, I want to take this. And you know, that, that, that was a harvest season. I you know, started in August, and I ended in April, May, and then uh, graduated, kind of tootled around for the summer, kind of doing the same summer job I had, which was selling sunglasses and like working at a, a food cart that um, my girlfriend in college's cousin owned all over the Northwest, like monster burrito, monster sausage. And it was great. I mean, I really enjoyed doing that. And I got to travel. We get, you know, all over. But, you know, after 
kind of, uh, when you're out of college and you're like, I don't know if I want to spend another slinging hot dogs in a dusty field. I just, I need, I need to do something else. So that initially led to going back to New York to visit some friends that lived out there and realizing, wow, this is a lot better than August and when I went before. I went during the holidays. Um, and uh, it just, it just clicked. Um, so at the time, I was working at a restaurant, kind of doing serving in Eugene, this restaurant called June. I'd somehow convinced the owner to let me do the wine. Um, she's like, sure, yeah, knock yourself out. And it was just super basic. And I was like super empowered. She's like, yes, I get to do wine. Um, and I didn't really know anything. I was trying to taste. The reps would be like, and I know now they're like, I need to unload this. So could you just want a case? Like, I was like, sure. And I realized now that they had like a quota or a, you know, an incentive, but whatever. It was fine. It was fun. And they gave me an opportunity to just kind of do my thing. Um, so I moved to New York. Um, and I got a job at a restaurant and about and really, really quickly, like three days, like you get on Craigslist, got a job at a restaurant. And it was just, it was a whole other world. I mean, just the, 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 the pace, the people, the, the way that you approach a dining experience, it was just night and day from the way that you approach things here and in Eugene. And I, I, I realized that kind of, you know, it, it's to be expected. It's New York City. But I'd never experienced it. And now that I was in it, I just remember this one moment I was standing. And it feels like it was forever, but it probably was five seconds. But standing, I'd been working there maybe three days. And I was. it was just this busy, hustling, like French brasserie. There's cabs going by outside. It was on 9th and 44th, this restaurant called Marseille. And it was just like, I live in New York City now, and this is my life. And I walk outside, and Times Square is right there. And it's just, and I work with this kind of just mix of people, like this, you know, the Spanish guy, this Argentine guy, these, you know, two Nigerian guys, this guy from, um, uh, God, where was, where was Prince from? Um, uh, from Burma, uh, from uh, uh, Myanmar. And, um, and it was just this really, interesting group of people and then I kind of got thrown into it and there was and it just um, and at that point I was like okay I can do this I I it's good money you know it's tips it's New York so I I but that's kind of where I hit that wall of like I don't really know what to do next um, I I feel like a lot of people move to a place and they have a, they're like, I have a plan for what I want to do. And I really admire those people because they're like, I'm specifically going to do this. And I moved there with my plan being moved to New York. And then I got there and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm here and I have a job and I'm sleeping on a couch and I have like six weeks of lodging set up. And I, I just, I don't know what to do after that. Um, New York's really expensive. So I blew through my savings in like um, six weeks. And I was like, I need to figure out something more sustainable. Um, and my, the sommelier that worked at the restaurant uh, was a Chilean guy and uh, with a very un-Chilean name. His name was Jonathan Charnay. Um, super not Chilean name. But I've realized now that there's, I met like a Robert Jackson in Chile once. And I was like, oh, where in the States are you from? And he's like blonde, green-eyed. And he's like, oh, I was born in Santiago. I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> Very not a Chilean name either, but whatever. Anyway, Jonathan was great, and we were a French brasserie, so we had mostly French wines, but he had a Carignan and a Sauvignon Blanc from Chile. 
and that really, I was like, oh, this is cool. And we started doing tastings, and you know, we would do staff trainings and on different wines. We would lead us through it, and um, we. I, I talk about this like it was a long time, but I really, really worked there like three months, um, and it feels like a long time because you know you do double shift from like brunch to midnight, and then you're like, ah, you're. It's just it was very surreal, mm -hmm. um, and then. Uh, I, I don't even remember how I found it, but I somehow came across a posting for a job at an organization called Wines of Chile, which is basically the Chilean version of the Oregon Wine Board. Um, and I applied, I interviewed, I got the job, and at the time I had like one suit that I bought because I was like, I'm moving to New York, I need a suit because that's what people wear in New York, right? Like, and I had a variety of different clothes but I was sleeping on, I don't know what it's called, but it's like the cheapest Ikea couch possible. It's the one that doesn't really fit anyone over five foot. Like if you roll out the cushion, I mean, you're, I'm, sh I'm sure I'm five eight, but like from my like mid thigh down, like nothing is on the couch and it's terribly uncomfortable. I had no dresser and I got this job and I was sleeping there and I'd like, it was sweaty, it was July at this point and I like would take off my clothes and I didn't have a closet or a hanger so I'd like drape them over the back to like try to keep them pressed. And anyway, this I got hired and I it was just me and this other person, my boss Lori, um, who was the executive director and I worked at a shelf, um, literally a shelf and we are in this little office space and um, we are inside of this kind of Chilean culinary art store connected to a Chilean wine shop. Um, and I had never really worked in marketing. I, it was like a marketing assistant, marketing associate position. Mm -hmm. I was still very passionate about wine and I was like, okay, this is an entry into, the, into wine that's not serving, that's not working in a restaurant, that's not uh, working production or something. Like it's a different, it's New York, so there's not really any wine production going on. Or at least there wasn't in 2010. Um, or maybe there was, but somewhere in Brooklyn. I, I don't know. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that kind of just started in a much more solidified way. Like, OK, I'm, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to see where this goes. And I'm going to kind of lean into this experience and this connection to wine that happens to be a Chilean wine. Like, I don't really know anything about that. Um, I, I realize now they make wine and they make a lot of it, but uh, you know, since then that has just kind of, that was the, the catalyst for really the, the rest of my career up until this point. Mm -hmm. um, and Lori was an amazing mentor and boss and, and it, it, everything that I would hope to expect out of someone who has high expectations of you and wants you to succeed, but it just, really is not is going to hold you really accountable and you know make you and push you into challenges and things that maybe you're not ready for but it's like okay just just go and do it and um but it takes the time to work and educate you and, and it just you know two and a half years there was an experience um it was a it was an incredible experience and i learned a lot and i became very very familiar with kind of the 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 peripheries of an industry that is very small and in a in an environment that was 
kind of the hub in many ways of the wine industry in a way that, that's kind of the opposite of what like California is for like the production of wine and kind of the the uh, the tourism hub of the industry. New York is that other side of it. You know, it's the sort of the publication hub of it. It is the sort of the restaurant hub of it, the on-premise hub of it, mm -hmm. with deep, deep roots. And an, I mean, an industry itself, you know, um, upstate. And, you know, I, I, I never really thought, and I, sitting here now, I never really thought that working at Wines of Chile would, would sort of keep me involved in the Chilean wine industry uh, or bring me back to Oregon or, or bring me to sitting here. I just, it was a job at a time about something I was passionate about and I felt very fortunate to be able to, to do it and take part in it and that they gave me a chance to do it. And um, it, yeah, it, um, it, it thrust me into a world that I hadn't really ever known or didn't, I didn't know existed. Um, you know, we did liaising with importers and distributors in the wineries in Chile, but also working with, you know, master sommeliers to go do master classes about Chilean wine all across the country and being able to travel and experience the way that they taught about these wines and educated about these wines because you know, the wine industry, I, and this, I, I guess this is a criticism, and I think it's changing a little bit, but the wine industry is very pro sort of wine, all wine. And then there are exceptions. And, you know, Chile has always been a major hurdle with the trade. There is a major bias against what Chile has, what Chile produces and what Chile is and the wines coming from there because a lot of the uh, sort of leaders and buyers and sort of decision makers in the industry have a notion of what Chile was and not really of what it is or what it's becoming. And I think that's what's kept me endlessly fascinated with it is unlike, you know, the enamored regions of Europe, you know, uh, the regions that we're enamored with in Europe, France and Italy and, you know, Spain, which make beautiful wine. I mean, there's, there's no question. They make beautiful wine and, and but they don't, Chile doesn't have that history in the way that, that we've given them that history here, you know, over the last history of the wine industry in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have quite the influence, but Chile is exactly like the U.S. I mean, it's an immigrant country. They brought varieties from the old world to the new, and they just happen to speak Spanish. Um, and. But what's fascinating about it is they're, they are still evolving. Those industries, I, sh I should say, not the industries, but uh, the regions in Europe are pretty entrenched in the way they do things, in tradition, in, in, their, in even the laws that govern what they can and can't plant, what they can and can't make, what, you know, the list goes on. And Chile, since the rediscovery of Carmen Air in 94, has, took a really hard, long look at itself and like, what are we doing? What are we planning? Where are we planning it? How, let's evolve this. And that's what's kept me with it for so long because it just, I get to be part of that. Mm -hmm. I get to be part of that evolution mm -hmm. and that, that story in a way that I, I can't,
can't really be with France or Spain or Italy. And you know, I mean, part of it was a strategic choice. I'm not a master sommelier, and I'm not really going to be able to be a, a leader and decision maker and an advocate in, in the way I kind of want to be in those regions because I just, everybody's over there. Everybody's at that party. And I'm like, there's a cool party over here. It just happens to be Chilean. And I know you all think it's bulk juice that's this hodgepodge of red and white for three bucks. And yeah, it used to be, but it's changing and let's explore that. Um, and that just kind of been my through line for a long time. Um, but I feel like I'm meandering kind of all over the place. I, I guess perfect. that's the perfect. perfect. Uh, um, but, you know, from, I guess taking it back, from Wines of Chile um, and kind of on that same thread, there was, I, became, I started to become more and more frustrated with sort of the homogeneity of what wines we were being offered from Chile, from the wineries and their importers at Wines of Chile to sort of use as a tool to convince members of the trade to pay attention to us. Mm -hmm. To say, take this seriously, or, or just not even take it seriously, just, just have a look, like, come on over. Because, you know, it's like, okay, Cabernet, Sauvignon Blanc, from big producers that make, you know, millions of cases a year. Um, and then, I can't remember the guy's name, uh, John Bonet, John Bonet, the, the, the San Francisco Chronicle critic, wrote the new California wine. I came out in probably 2012, 2010 maybe, um, and it was a really in-depth look at the new California wine, which was kind of, I felt like exactly what, he was writing about what I felt like our challenges were, but in Chile. And you know, it's like you have these big behemoths of the California wine industry that kind of have run roughshod over a lot of grassroots sort of innovation and old vineyards and just, you know, everything became White Zinfandel and Cab and Parkerized and Chardonnay and that was that. And this book explored sort of the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, this wine or, or an importer called Vine Connections kind of came to us at Wines of Chile saying, hey, we have been in business since 98. We have focus on two really weird extremes of Argentine Malbec before the boom and premium Japanese sake. Completely different from one another, but we really think there's a lot of potential here. We are now going to add Chile to this. Um, and when we first went down to Argentina or in South America in the late 90s, Chile just wasn't ready. Um, it's ready now. Mm -hmm. um, and you know this is 14 years later. Um, so we're going to put together a portfolio of these boutique Chilean wineries that we're calling the New Chile. And you know, we need your help, Wines of Chile, to kind of find someone to kind of take on a role to be our ambassador, salesman, sort of person to go and talk about these mm -hmm. and, and, and drive these in the trade and the on-premise. And I was like, oh my god, yeah, like I, th this is exactly what I want to do. And up until that point, I had no idea. I was like, maybe I'll go work at Palm Bay. Okay, then I have to commute to Long Island. Like that, I'd rather scratch my eyes out. And I, I don't have a car, so it's like, you know, maybe I'll go work at some of the other big importers in New York, which, you know, Frederick Wildman or you know, maybe a distributor or something. But I didn't, I, I, I don't know. I just, it didn't. I, I wasn't there. Like I just didn't. 
that was that wasn't really my my cup of tea at the moment. This came along, and I I you know they they hired me, and I I I, I used a phrase in my interview that I I, I don't. I still think about it now. I'm like, I think it worked at the time. I don't know if it's, um, I don't know how well it's aged, but I, I told, they're like, why should we hire you? And I was like, because I'm a gringo. Like, it would be like me being from Oregon, being like, buy Oregon wine. I'm really passionate about it. I'm from here, Oregon. And I get that argument. At the same time, you know, it's not that I don't think people from Chile or South America should, should advocate and say, you know, I don't think that's a bad choice, but I was like, I'm convinced. I'm convinced about the future of what's going on down here. Mm-hmm. And I'm not from there. I'm not, I wasn't, I haven't grown up with it. I came, it, I, I, I came to it totally unexpected, and I was like, I'm captivated. I am fascinated by what is going on down there. Let me tell that story. And, you know, there are many other voices that need to be heard, but like, I, I'm, I, I don't know if it was a bias that I felt like was, but I also wanted the job. Like I wanted them to hire me, and then I, like I said, I don't know if that's aged well, but I, I just, it, it, it made sense at the time, and they hired me, and it was a wild ride, and I got to travel a lot, and I went to Chile a lot, and it was really, it, it was, a, it was more of an in-depth look than I ever thought I'd, I'd have, because I got to kind of springboard off of what I'd been doing with wines of Chile and really delve into it and start to tell about these these stories that were from these little boutique wineries from you know a 6500 foot dry Pedro Jimenez vineyard in the Andes in the north to you know Chardonnay being made in Oregon basically the Oregon of Chile mm-hmm. and that was I was like oh I'm sold I want to keep doing this um, but the travel after 2 years was killing me and it was just I was like I you know it's time I'm I'm never in New York New York's expensive I'm never here. Literally all of my things are in a storage unit because I had the radical notion of like, I'm just not going to have an apartment. I'm just going to put my things in storage and I'll come back in nine months and see where I'm at. That's a cheaper rent for a storage unit than having an apartment. And (laughs) I just, I came out here a lot more and it's home. So I just found myself when I had downtime coming out here more. So I eventually made the decision, like, you know what? If I'm going to keep doing this, I'm going to base myself in, in, in Oregon. I want, I want to move home. Um, I think I had a notion in the back of my mind that I eventually kind of wanted to work my way into the Oregon wine industry um, again uh, in a much more sort of permanent way than just doing a harvest. Um, and at this point, it had been about five years. Um, and then I came here. Uh, I had been here like two months and then I lost my job. They are the, the biggest supplier that Vine Connections had from Argentina um, pulled out, went to another importer, and so like eight of us got let go. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I just uprooted myself again and have moved back to Oregon. I'm in Portland. I just got an apartment, but now I don't have a job. It's like, cool, okay, <laughs> great. Um, uh, Damn it. <laughs> um, and then uh, I actually went back to Wines of Chile. Um, they, that was, I reached out to them. I was like, hey, could you have like some freelance work I could do? I'm trying to cobble together some stuff. And they were like, uh, it was a different, um, different executive director at this point uh, who I kind of met and known and knew from before. Um, 
And she's like, oh, sure, like you can you can do some of our reports, like the Gomberg report or Nielsen report, like put those together, organize them, and do all that stuff, and, and, and send it out to the industry to our members. And I was like, oh, great, I, I love spreadsheets. I, I love, I, I really like spreadsheets. I, you know, I don't know why, um, but I do. Uh, <laughs> and so I started doing that, and then she's like, oh, hey, like we're gonna be at Pebble Beach Food and Wine. I don't really like the, uh, assistant, the marketing assistant that we have, like I don't think they're really up for this job. Like, do you want to come down and help us out? I was like, yeah, I want to go to Pebble Beach food. I've never been before, like I absolutely. So we get down there and we're having dinner and she's like, I, every, I just, I don't feel good. I was like, okay, like, and her husband was there and like, you know, and then she eventually went to the ER. She's like, I have to have an appendectomy right now. Um, could you just run the show? And I was like, okay, um, cool. It's like getting back into the driver's seat from what I'd been doing two-ish years prior at wine, when I left Wines of Chile. Um, and it went off, she had her appendectomy, it was all done. I came home, she called me, she's like, okay, I fired Philip, do you want a job? <laughs> uh, and I was like, that's not what my intention was. Um, this is a totally unexpected thing, but yes, I do. Um, I will totally take that. Um, and I think it was kind of a blessing and a curse uh, because it was my first, I think about it now, it was my first uh, time working remotely because she was on the East Coast, I was in, and I um, was just working, you know, 12 inches from my bed at my desk. And I, she was a very different um, boss than, than my previous one was at Wines of Chile much less organized and much less detail oriented, but far more creative and um, exceptionally creative. And, and I was like, okay. But I mean, it killed me. After a year, I was like, I'm miserable. I cannot keep doing this. This is just, I can't keep working remotely. She's driving me crazy. Like I need to, I need to, this is temporary. I didn't want to come back here. I, I just, it was, a, it was a good sort of Band-Aid. Um, what can I, I, I need to, I'm here, I'm in Oregon, I need to, I want to get into the Oregon wine industry. And um, that was, I don't, I can't remember at this point if it was um, easy or hard or, or just like, I, I remember I applied to a bunch of places and um, I remember a friend of mine who had grew up, grown up in Dundee had taken me to Penarash um, back in like 2009. And we went for the Riesling, beautiful old vine, Highland Riesling. And um, we, so I applied and uh, as their like club manager marketing role. And uh, they ended up hiring me and I was stoked. And I was like, okay, th yes, this is, this is what I was looking for. Like I, I wanna go work at a boutique organ producer. Mm -hmm. And I want to, you know, I, I've never done DTC, but it's, it's, it combines a lot of things that I really like. Storytelling, marketing, um, sort of interacting and working with customers to, and I, I've never really been able to tell intimate stories about these wines because I had to do it on a much like 50,000 foot level because it's like, let's tell the story of a country as opposed to a wine from a single vineyard. We never really got to get into that level of detail at, Wines of Chile or even, Vine Connections, we got closer to it, but there was 
12 wineries mm -hmm. to juggle. And here there was one. And I was like, this is fantastic. And six weeks later, they sold the Jackson family. And uh, that was not what I was expecting um, at all. Uh, that was, uh, that too was a blessing and a curse. Uh, I have a whole lot to say about that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people in the industry do. Um, it, I've thought about this before, and I'm like, how am I going to talk about this? Because they are a major player here now, and they are a good company, and they do, I, I do really admire the wines and their dedication to viticulture, and their dedication to the, their, their willingness to take risks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's something that doesn't exist much in the Oregon wine industry. Uh, let me take that back. That's not, I, I don't think that exists much within the wine industry. I don't think the wine industry is a particularly innovative industry. I think we're kind of slow movers in that regard with embracing new sort of techniques, philosophies, maybe outside of winemaking. That's never been my area of expertise. So I, I can't speak about the way that they're innovating and bringing new techniques and, and whatnot. But in my experience in the industry, they're just, it's an old white guy's club for a large part. And, you know, I'm a white guy, and I, I recognize that, that I don't really want to be part of that old model, but how, how do you begin to sort of innovate outside of that and embrace an alternative mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and move in that direction? And I think Jackson Family does that well enough, um, but I never really signed up to go work for a California winery that had been started by, you know, 20 years prior in Oregon. You know, kind of that second wave of, of winemakers coming into Oregon like Lynn was. And, um, you know, that they, that they, you know, built and, and just, that was an exciting story to tell. And I was like, oh my God, how do I, how do I then tell the story of like, well, we're now owned by a California winery. How, how does that, some people won't care. Some people will be like, you're awful. Like, we don't ever want to be part of your club again, and we don't want to do business with you. Mm -hmm. And others, it'll go kind of unnoticed. Mm -hmm. But that's from a customer standpoint. I mean, I think from the industry standpoint, I, I know that's still like pretty, I don't know if heated is the wrong word, but I think that's a, a device. I think it's an issue with a lot of tension. Mm -hmm. um, in Oregon, and you know, California's not the only one coming here. I mean, you know, Louis Jadot is here. Um, the Bollinger family came, just came here. Uh, you know, I mean, the Druin family has been here for you know 30 years, 40 years. Um, I think there's, I mean, there's always been a rivalry between Oregon and in California in 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 a lot of ways, and this is just kind of the latest sort of theater of that. Um, and it's touching an industry that people are very passionate about because it's literally rooted in the ground. And I think people get protective about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can empathize with that. Um, at the same time, you know, from a personal sort of personal journey business standpoint, it was really, it, it, I learned a lot, and I, I, it reminded me of something Lori said when I left Wines of Chile. She talked about, she's like, go work for a big company. Learn the systems. Learn the way that they approach things, because 
that's invaluable. You, you put it in your back pocket and, and, and use it elsewhere, but go work for a big company mm -hmm. and, and just learn the way that they do things. And I was like, no, I'm not gonna do that. And I went and worked for Vine Connections, not a big company, much smaller, much more boutique. And you know, they're it, it, pros and cons, mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, well, okay, I guess now it's been thrust upon me that this is my opportunity to learn from a big company. And that was really beneficial. I really, I really valued the takeaways I had from that. But at the same time, you know, it, it was, that was a hard transition. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was something that Lynn and Ron really prepared their employees for outside of production. And I, I don't criticize or fault Lynn or Ron for, for selling to, to Jackson Family whatsoever. I think that was a decision they made for themselves. And I think it made a lot of sense, mm -hmm. particularly with her ability to continue to sort of exert her influence and her control and, and shepherd her company and her wines in her way. And Jackson Family allowed that. Mm -hmm. And I think that was wonderful because that's what they bought. At the same time, you know, you're like, oh, okay, I didn't, as employees, like none of us really signed up to work for that. Now we have to get on board with this new way of working and thinking and, um, you know, Jackson Family's, I always talk about, I had two different bosses there. Um, and I really wish I had the second one first and the first one second because of the way that they approach things. You know, it's like learning a new language. Mm -hmm. I don't speak, I, when, I learned, when I started there, I didn't speak Jackson family. I had no idea what th this form was, that, how you, this, that, and the other thing, and they knew to approach it this way, and I, I just, I didn't speak the language. So the learning curve was steep. Mm -hmm. And we're all kind of in the same boat trying to juggle this, but like all of our support mechanisms were in California. And thank God we had Eugenia Keegan uh, because she's just a wonderful human being and she is a remarkable diplomat and a remarkable sort of translator in, in a whole host of, of, of ways. And just her ability to just take kind of what their asks were and translate it for like, this is what they're asking you to do, that they just word it this way. And we're like, oh! And I mean, she was invaluable, um, you know? And also just trying to manage, like, how do we, how do we begin to interact with Lynn and Ron again? Because I, I, the whole, I can't even imagine the stress and the, the emotional, ter not turmoil, but just like upheaval that they went through in selling something that they created like that. And now, how then do they manage and navigate this new world and process? Mm -hmm. um, you know, but, People are, even if we, people say they aren't selfish, we all have selfish tendencies and we all want, we're like, hey, this isn't fair. This is not working out. This is not what I signed up for. And I get that. And I totally, you know, I cannot be fully altruistic all the time. And, uh, you know, and I think people, we just have to be willing to step back and take a long, hard look at like, what are we asking and what are we hoping for? And is it, can I learn something from this? And can I do, can I, can I, can I step back and I see the forest through the trees? Um, and I almost said, can you see like the grapes through the grape, uh, the vineyard? But I, that's, that's. Two on the I, nose. It's two on the nose. Um, I like puns, but I'm terrible at them. Every once in a while I get one that's like just gold and then I can never remember it. My wife is a, a pun machine. She is exceptional at them and I was like, 
anyway, that's a total tangent. Stepping yeah. back, stepping back, and seeing, 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 the, seeing the bigger picture. Yeah, and um, that was a really hard time. I had, I had also just started in graduate school at the time, um, and I, I, I remembered very distinctly, like, it, I'd probably been in grad school at like four or five months at that point. Maybe I was just finishing like the first or semester, or just started the second. And my boss at the time, that the first boss that I really wish I had second. Um, I remember him saying something to me along the lines of like, well, you know, that's really a commitment that you should have thought about before you started, you know, and it just kind of this like questioning, like, why am I doing that? And I was like, man, I didn't know you were going to buy this place. Like, I, I, I'm making decisions for myself. I had no idea that this was going to come my way. And it just, it, that was a very hard period of time. And I eventually left. Um, I was just kind of done with it. I just, it, I finished grad school. And you know, it's like, okay, great. I finished grad school. I got my MBA because I have a theater degree and a geography degree, and like, I have a theater degree and a geography degree, <laughs> which are wonderful degrees. Like, but I, I, I needed some hard skills, and I needed, I needed a potential employer to be able to look at me and see past that, and not have to explain the value of those degrees and how they bring them. Because that might be my third interview, and I really need to get a foot in the door. So I want to get an MBA. Mm -hmm. I want to get a, a, you know, something with a little more harder skills. Plus, I love spreadsheets. A lot of spreadsheets in that, and um, that that was a that was a good choice, and I'm really really happy I did it. And um, but that that kind of once I finished that, this is in 2018, um, early 2018. That kind of was the beginning of my sort of exit from. Um, Jackson family in Penner Ash, and, and I look back on that, and I'm really happy I worked there. I, I really am. I mean, Lynn makes beautiful wines, and and Lynn is a very tenacious person, and she speaks her mind, and I, I really I admire that. And I and I, you know, she was the first female winemaker hired in Oregon in in, a, in an all boys club, and she made her mark, and she said, no, I'm going to do it this way. And I and I admire that, and I and I, you know, it's like, she then, you know, she ch and I had to remind myself, she chose to work with Jackson family. They just didn't show up, I assume, <laughs> with a blank check. You know, I've met Barbara Ranke several times. She is a, a very thoughtful, detail-oriented woman, and she doesn't make decisions lightly. Nor does Lynn, and. I think sometimes people think that they could that would lead to conflict, but I think it leads to a mutual respect. And anyway, I, I, I had to remind myself of that, that like Lynn chose to sell. Lynn and Ron chose to sell this. Like they had a there there was more to it about this than just the money that they got from selling it. It was about how is our name, not only our wines, but how is that going to be stewarded with this new company? Mm -hmm. How are they going to caretake that for something that we've poured 20 years of passion and sweat and blood and tears into. And you know, I had to kind of come back and think like, there was a reason why she did that. And I have to trust that. And you know, and I, I have my own frustrations with that whole transition. But I look back on it. I mean, hindsight is 2020. And you're like, I'm glad I went through that. I do not want to go through it again. Um, my there's <laughs> my wife. It was a really hard period of time. I don't want to go to grad school again and do all that at the same time. That was that was miserable. 
Um, but it really couldn't have happened at a better time. And it really couldn't have, had, you know, I was able to draw a lot of what was happening there and apply it to school and just vice versa. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy I went through it. You know, it shouldn't all be easy. Um, and, you know, it never is anyway. So, <laughs> um, but it, it, you know, I thought a lot about, like, how do I talk about this? Because it, I, you know, some of the people there are, you know, still there. And others of us, we talk about it, we're like, oh, man, that was, <laughs> let's get a beer and talk about this. Um, and uh, I started to think more about, like, okay, what, what's next? Like, do I go get a job at another winery? And then I, as I started to spelunk around and like look for things, you know, I, I would kind of encounter various wineries that wanted to hire a position they called, you know, wine club manager or like national sales manager. But really, it included a variety of other roles, which included working in the tasting room or helping them deal with an inventory issue. That, and it, it's not that I thought anybody was not being transparent. I just. I think there are some that want to sign up and like, hey, I want to do all the grunt work. I want to be your national sales manager and scrub the tanks and work in the tasting room and do your social media. That's wonderful. And I, I really admire those people's grit. But like, I did not want to do that. I was like, if you're going to hire me for a job, let me fully do that job. And like, if you have an inventory issue, let's really focus on that. And let's incentivize moving those out. And, you know, so. I kind of found myself, um, I found a position with Fetzer, uh, which was a Northwest-based um, sort of district manager. And I thought about like, ooh, Fetzer. Um, they make like $7 wine, don't they? Um, and, but they've been around a long time. And I was like, well, I have already worked for one big company. This is another big company. Um, I also knew that they were owned by Coincidentally, Conchi Toro, which is the big Chilean winery, um, and a big global winery. They're like the fifth largest winery in the world. Um, that's an interesting Chile connection. And I started to think about, like, OK, what have I? I've worked, at a, I've worked in DTC. I've worked in a tasting room. I've worked at Harvest. I've worked for a trade association. I have worked for a small boutique winery. I've you know, done direct sales, marketing. like. Worked, kind of dabbled in the various educational aspects with the, you know, the guild and the Society of Wine Educators with Wines of Chile and whatnot. Um, I've never worked for a company that is predominantly focused on chains, and you know, by and large, a majority of the wine sold in this country is sold through retail and chains, and you know, most of the Oregon wine is not, you know, but I mean, A to Z. That's their lifeblood, you know. King Estate, before they sold Acrobat, that was their lifeblood, you know. Many of the other larger wineries here, Lima Valley. I mean, that that is how they do the volume they do. I mean, they're you know, you're not going to sell 250,000 cases of, of wine just in Oregon of Pinot Gris. It's just not going to happen. That was the other thing I really admired about Lynn. Neither of us really care for Pinot Gris, and I was like, okay, I'm not alone. Um, I, there are some exceptions, but by and large, I was like, I just can't. I just Oregon's Pinot Gris is wonderful, and there's some good stuff, but it just became all like Acrobat, and that's fine. But then everybody did it, and that's a story for a later time. But I was like, Yeah, Lynn. Okay, we're, well, I'm not crazy. We're on the same page here. Um, 
She had a zeal for Riesling. I have a zeal for Riesling. And um, anyway, um, I thought about Fetzer from kind of a strategic standpoint. Like, I've never worked in chains. I, again, I don't speak that language. I don't know how to sell pallets. Um, but I was like, this is a good, this is a good choice. Like, I, I need to know that. If I'm going to work in this industry, even if it's something I don't want to do for the future and spend my whole life, you know, trying to sell a Costco or Kroger, or, I need to learn how it's done. I need to understand how it, it works because, you know, I, you know, what do I want to do when I grow up? I, I don't quite know, but I mean, if it's being a general manager of a winery or kind of working even for a, you know, a, a boutique importer, knowing how that world works is essential to that. And, and I'm, I'm not going to get that experience without working in a company that focuses on that. So, you know, that led me to Fetzer. Um, and I, the more I started to learn about Fetzer, and I was like, oh, this is more than just $7 wine. You know, this is a B Corp. This is the kind of the progenitor of organic viticulture in the United States with Bonterra. I mean, you know, I, this is a, a, despite it being strange at the time, an innovator in the sense of doing bourbon barrel aged wines, which not my cup of tea, but I, I, that's unique. That's not, that's innovative. Like, I don't really always think the wine industry is being particularly innovative. That's changing, but, and I think that that really has changed over the last decade. But, okay, that, that's interesting. What do you guys do with DTC? Like, what does Fetzer do with DTC? What do they do with small boutique production wines? Oh, no, nothing. <laughs> but there's a lot, they have a lot to work with. There's just nothing that exists there um, when I started. And, you know, it really all came down to selling Casier del Diablo, Fetzer, Monterra. Thousand stories and you know doing demos and doing things like that and working with our distributors to help move thousands of cases and that again was really uh, that was a necessary learning um, because that it whether I like it or not it that exists that's just how the industry operates um, you know that's entrenched in our our system that we have. Um, you know, I'd love to sell every drop of wine to a boutique wine shop that's, you know, down around the corner, but they just can't absorb that much. And they make way too much wine for that to happen. And, you know, you can't convince everybody that a $50 bottle of wine is a reasonable purchase. You know, people are like, absolutely not. I'm going to buy $8 wine. I'm going to be happy. Great. There's no reason that that shouldn't exist. Um, but then again, there's no reason that you can't make $8 wine at a good quality either. Um, and that's a whole other debate about pricing equality, but don't, I'll leave that. Yeah. Um, so from there, right after I started, my the, the woman who hired me, um, Jen Iverson, our, our VP of the West, um, was like, there's a big announcement coming. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> like, I, and I'd been there like three weeks at the time. And I was like, if this is another repeat, like if we're being bought by like Constellation or like some other I don't even know what could potentially happen. Um, Brown Foreman's coming back. You know, I, I don't, I can't go through that again. I have, I, I just, I just want to work at a job that I'm like, I signed up for this and not have it be kind of ripped out from under me a month later. Uh, and then adapt to that new environment that I didn't necessarily have transparency when I signed up for it. Uh, it actually wasn't that bad. It turns out that, that, the importers of Conchitoro's wines, Banfi, 
uh, an Excelsior based on the East Coast that imported all the, you know, you know, Costello Banfi and all, a lot of Italian stuff. They were, Conchitoro was pulling their South American portfolio and bringing it to Fetzer, which at this point, it was like eight years after they had bought Fetzer. So I was like, well, that took a while. But they finally brought all their Chilean stuff over. And I was like, okay, I, this is unexpected, um, but I feel like I have a unique background to sort of get into this. And Fetzer then started to embrace more of a kind of a fine wine approach. Like, oh, we make all these other like single vineyard biodynamic wines that we make 400 cases of. These single block of single vineyard wines out of Chile that, that really highlight you know, some crazy guy in, Argent, in Ar Chile, Ignacio Recabarin's idea of terroir, but it happened in the 80s, you know, when nobody in Chile even knew what they had planted half the time. And it just held on. And, you know, I always talk about, like, the idea of terroir is not a new concept. And, like, we talk about it, it's ubiquitous now in any conversation about wine. That didn't exist in Chile in, in a really manifested way until the 80s, in early 90s. Um, that's just not what they were set up for. Uh, that's not how they were taught. And it's changed drastically and really led internally. Um, and, you know, from anyway, from, from there, they brought that over. And then I was like, okay, there's a unique opportunity here to kind of leverage my skills and experience in this new way. They hired, they started to then dabble in DTC and they hired a, um, uh, uh, a VP that was going to focus exclusively on our fine wine portfolio. She hired me to, to kind of act as their brand ambassador. And it was a collection of, you know, multiple origins from Argentina, Chile, and California. You know, I didn't have to sell Fetzer anymore. I didn't have to sell, you know, you know, Casier del Diablo. Nothing wrong with those wines. I just, it's not my cup of tea. Um, you know, I'm happy to, you know, I, I, my passion lies in the, in the small. Mm -hmm. And I just, that's what I wanted to do. And those are the stories I wanted to tell. There's just much more meat on that bone um, without being contrived um, and sort of marketing driven um, or corporate driven. And um, then the pandemic hit. And then uh, <laughs> I was like, oh God, well, this is the first thing to go. Uh, but it didn't. And my boss, uh, her name was Stephanie, she left um, and then this new guy came in uh, named Sebastian, and he had been with Conchitoro for years, and uh, he's based in Chile. And, and since then, it's been this little kind of cohort of us. Um, this guy in Florida, my colleague Italo and Sebastian, that have really been sort of trying to shepherd this new fine wine portfolio that we call the Origins Collection which is a, a focus on the multiple origins and kind of the, the, the small of what we do. You know, you know, 12 brands with maybe a total of like 25,000 cases, 30,000 cases. And, you know, for a company that will make you know, 3 million cases of one Cabernet, that's, that's small. Uh, and we have been sort of working in that the last year and a half to kind of guide, shepherd this and, and sort of find common ground and focus and attention from our own team to say there is worth in selling these wines. You know, you can do your job and not just sell a 
palette of Bonterra, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, there is, there is opportunity here to really tell a different story and, and really live our, our, what Barney Fetcher talked about in the very beginning, which is like, what's, what's good for the earth is good for the grape, and what's good for the grape is good for the wine. And, and at its simplest, that's kind of the ethos behind all of this, and we just get to do it on a small level, and that's kind of been what I've been doing the last 18 months. But in all that, sitting at home, I am a bit of a restless soul. I like doing things and projects, and I, I was like, I can't just do the corporate thing. I can't just, you know, I, I need my own outlet. I need my own outlet of creativity. I need my own outlet of my own view and voice on these things. And, and so I was like, I don't know how difficult it is to start a company or get an OLCC license, but I'm going to try. I, I think at the time, I it was like April, and everybody was like, oh my god, get your toilet paper, get your wine, and like, don't go anywhere. Um, and I, so in our group of friends, I was like, oh, hey, everybody, like, do you want, please don't go buy like Dark Horse or like, you know, whatever, not, you know, I don't even, you know, not to knock Dark Horse, but I, I can knock Dark Horse. Um, it's fine. Um, but like, just go buy some things with a little more like personality. Um, like you all have enjoyed drinking wines with me. Like you're like, oh, this is cool. I never experienced this grape. Like, what if I put together a little pack? Like the pandemic's going on. We're all going to be home. Like, let me just put together like a little suggestion of what you could go out and do. And then I was like, well, this could this could be something. This could be a business. This could be. I, I could start to kind of play off this. And then it was actually really easy to get LCC license. <laughs> I had no idea, but it was really easy. Uh, my garage is a licensed OLCC retail off-premise. I can't drink in there, which is very bizarre to me. Um, it's like my own garage that I had to rent to myself, and I can't like have a glass of wine in there because it's an off-premise retailer. And, and I get that, but I was like, this is funny. But OK. Um, but they allow it. And it then gave me the legality to just start doing this. And I was like. Okay, well, I'll get a business. I'll register with the state, and thus Multnomah Wine Studio was born. And part of it kind of evolved out of we have one wine shop in our um, uh, neighborhood. I mean, we're, we're I live right by John's Marketplace, which is like the west side of Portland's version of sort of Belmont Station or like Horse Brass, like this kind of iconic beer shop that is just endlessly overwhelming. Um, they do have wine there, but it's not really a wine shop. I mean, that's not really their expertise. You know, it's like, oh, well, we have wine because people come in and they ask for it, so we'll have a, a selection, but that's not really our cup of tea. Mm -hmm. There is one wine shop in the village, which is just only focus, focuses on Northwest wine, and it is just this. I've thought about how to say this tactfully without like disparaging her business, because um, it has been there for 17 years, but it's just, it just seems really lonely. Uh, it just, you know, I know there are customers out there who want to go to a wine shop where there's like the velveteen rabbit and another stuffed animal sitting at a little bistro table playing chess. I feel like that's a little outdated. And I feel like it, it just, that just doesn't really have a lot of 
it just seems musty. It seems, it seems, it, it, it needs some new life into it. And, and like, we've lived in our little community now and for five years and we're like, we need something that has just a little more zest to it. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a millennial. The boomers are our, our, our arch nemesis. And, you know, it's like our neighborhood is a lot of boomers and it's like, uh, there is a there is a new way to, and it's there are other ways to tell the story than just sitting next to the Velveteen Rabbit playing checkers to have my only Northwest wine in a really deep, cavernous, blood red, just kind of dank place. Um, you know, I go to all these other wine shops around Portland on the East Side, particularly, and like Division Wines. I'm like, oh, this place is great. You know, our Southeast Wine Collective, or even Broadway Wines downtown, like uh, Lacave, that little kind of cave area, which I really want to go back to. And Park Avenue, I mean, I, the list goes on and on. Um, and it has an assortment and collection and voice that transcends just the Northwest. But, and it's not just that, it's just like, this just needs some new life breathed into it. Like our little strip, our little village is just kind of full of like bead shops, like a frame store and like, uh, like a kind of a dank wine shop. Like it just, we need more than that here. So anyway, I digress. Um, Multnomah Wine Studio was born and the idea was essentially to, you know, create thematic packs that, and not like old world, new world, um, California, you know, things that are a little more off the cuff and a little more sort of provocative, maybe not provocative is the right word, but maybe to, uh, you know, non-wine people. Like, I have a pack that I'm going to release this, this weekend called Hot Grill Summer. I barely know Megan Thee Stallion, but my friends are like, oh, that's totally a Megan Thee Stallion song from 2019. And I was like, I did not realize that. That's awesome. I'm going to totally play off Hot Grill Summer. And I'm going to have Hot Grill Summer because it doesn't just have to be Cabin's Infidel. Like, let's play around with some stuff. And, you know, or like, wines to drink alone. It's the pandemic. Please don't go and drink with friends. But these are also great wines to have by themselves. You don't have to pair them with food. They pair really well with a glass. Or, you know, beyond organic. Like, what are people doing out there that's just not organic wine, organically grown wine? What is this whole natural wine, you know? And just playing off different ideas like that. Um, and creating a, taking a very, very diverse world of wine and trying to Put it into a little theme that people can be like, I've never thought to explore this. You know, I've never thought to kind of, you know, I go to the grocery store and I know Chardonnay, I know Pinot Gris, I know Pinot Noir, and I know Cabernet and Merlot, but like, what else is out there? I, you know, I've never had Norella Moscalese, I've never had Mavedra, I've never had, uh, you know, Glera. Uh, let's introduce those. Um, so. It has been a work in progress, and it's totally kind of a side hustle that evolved out of the pandemic. But it just it gives me a voice, and it gives me an opportunity to just kind of be like, I'm going to unabashedly just present this in the way I want to present it. Mm -hmm. And you know, people are going to read what I write, and they're going to be like, that's not grammatically correct. I'm like, I don't really care. I'm not in it for that. Like, I this is just the way I talk about it. And um, I, you know, I, I Faulkner I think once said like, you know, with the stream of consciousness. You know, I'm just going to put a whole page of commas at the back, and you put them where you want to, because this is just the way I write. And I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, well, Faulkner was questionable, but you know, in a lot, in a lot of ways. But um, I appreciated that sentiment, mm -hmm. um, and I haven't gotten that feedback, thank God, so far. Nobody's like, you're a crammer. 
Um, I'm not a grammarian. My dad totally is. He's an English German teacher, and he's very much like, get the grammar right. And I'm like, I can't. I just I'm not built that way. Um, so, so yeah. I mean, this has kind of been a project that's been going on a little over a year, and it is just kind of me and my wife. You know, she will oftentimes like, you know allude to like oh like this pack or like let's play with this or like you know whatever it's a you know a collaborative effort in in our ability to kind of create this and guide it and just you know i have no really ambitions of building this into a, a giant like e-commerce giant or like rival wine.com but i i like the idea of what like garage east up in seattle does i'm like we have a mailing list I don't, you not obligated to buy it, just sign up. I'm gonna send you this. If you wanna buy it, buy it. If you don't, cool. If not, just come and learn a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and I like that approach. I didn't wanna obligate people to purchase. Um, I just wanted to give them the option. Um, yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that, and then, well, I saw that you interviewed Kate, who I used to work with at Penn International. I was like, oh, Kate, yeah. And then I'm very humbled that you're like, do you wanna be interviewed? And I was like, Sure, like I, I that would be really wonderful. I, I, it, yes, um, you know. So here we are. <laughs> that answered, that's, that answered that's like, all of the questions that I have. So I'm, 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 I, got, I got plenty of questions to go back. Oh to. no, we're that is a, that is a wonderful answer to my second question. I'm very very appreciative of all of that. So I, I want to go back a little bit to um, early on why, yeah. why, why an education for yourself. You mentioned W WSET. You mentioned some of the things you did. I'm curious about. Once wine became a passion for you, what were the ways you educated yourself, both kind of palate-wise and just sort of about wine? Um, what did you find effective? Um, and, and tell us about kind of your experience with sort of formal and informal wine education. Yeah. Um, so I went through the intro and certified with the guild, and then went through WSET three, um, kind of in fits and starts, but through WSET. I didn't ever want to continue more with the guild because I was like, I'm not, I, I'm not going to work as a server. I don't, I don't want to work in restaurants anymore. Um, I've, I've been there. I've done that. It's wonderful. Bless those people. But I just, I don't have the temperament for it. Um, and uh, to be perfectly honest, um, and the WSAT was a bit more of sort of a less about service and more about just kind of geeking out. And I was like, I like rocks, I like dirt, let's talk about that. Um, you know, I haven't really been involved in that many formal taster groups, and that's something I've kind of wanted to try to find around here. I know that um, I just haven't really explored it, and the pandemic kind of shuttered all that. But prior to that, um, honestly, it was really uh, being able to, ex New York has a endless supply of wines from everywhere. I mean, and just going to different places that allowed you to taste things like um, um, Terroir, the kind of iconic um, wine bar in, in, in New York, used to do, I think it was on Wednesdays, they would do like a free sherry happy hour. And people would be like, free? And he's like, people need to drink this. Sherry's fascinating and wonderful, and you're an idiot if you hate it. And I was like, okay. And um, that's that, oh God, what's that guy's name? Um, it'll come to me. Um, I know I can picture his face. Um, goatee, 
very outspoken, very passionate. Um, I can't remember his name. Um, it'll come to me. But anyway, that was he was like, I'm just, I'm, I have to give this away for free because people won't pay for it, but they need to drink it. So it's things like that, going to places like that to experience, like, okay, let's taste this, and then, I mean, tasting and doing the various things through the different sort of formalized classes, um, and then, honestly, being able to be on the road, like, I felt exceptionally lucky to, we had a, an educator that worked with Wines of Chile who was a master sommelier, Fred Dexheimer, and he, we would travel a lot together, um, going to, you know, various cities with the guild's master classes that they would do, um, you know, in 2011, 2013, 2012, and, and all through that period of time um, to teach about Chile. So being, I mean, obviously getting to taste a plethora of Chilean wines here and down there. But then, um, you know, I mean, we'd go out and you'd be like, okay, try this, like, try this, like, you need to know what this is. Or, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it, this is a producer that you really need to understand if you're gonna understand um, this region. You know what, what have you, and and that was that was an education. That was that was really wonderful, and and just honestly going to a bunch of trade tastings. Like we would go to different events, like Osbeesterone, and being able to experience that and taste around. So all, I'd say a, a, most of it was more informal mm -hmm. than sort of that. I really admire the people who are able to take just copious, detailed encyclopedic notes on their own. I mean, like, I see some of my, a friend of mine, um, I think she just left, but she was like the beverage director at like the Four Seasons in Philly. And she, her, her notes, it's like, you publish that into a book. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Um, her level of detail and drawings about the wine region she's going through, and just, I can't do that. I'm not that, I don't know if it's patient or detailed. I can't really draw that well. And I just, I just, I, I don't, I fall victim to the old theater adage of, you know, it's like, oh, hey, how many theater kids does it take to change a light bulb? Let's go ride bikes. You know, I, I just, I get distracted when I have to focus that intently. Um, so my point being, um, <laughs> I didn't really go that way. Um, so I needed the formal classes like the WSET 3 to really hone in and invest and, and get really specific about things that I would otherwise just read. But a lot of it came down to reading, too. Um, I mean, from, you know, I mean, Chancellor Robinson's books to Karen McNeil to, you know, uh, The New California from John Bonet and, and uh, you know, I think it's all of that stuff. Um, I think I got away from the question. <laughs> um, what was it again? Just about wine education. Okay. So you, formally, you're still on that. Okay, still I'm still on the there. Right path. Yeah. Um, I haven't. I'm on a side road. Um, but uh, I find a lot of value in it. Absolutely. I mean, it has been really instrumental in helping me kind of develop. I, really, a, a process for how you taste. Because I mean, you go into wine and you're like. Blackberry, like acid, like I, you know, I talked to my friends about that. I'm like, do you get that? And they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and I get, I get that. Like, if you're not, if you're a novice and you're not a, a, you haven't been through kind of formal lessons on how what to look for. Of course, you're not going to know what to do. So having that was invaluable. 
to just be able to pick apart a wine. Like I can't do it to the level of, you know, the master psalms and, 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 and really the people who work in the industry. And I, I never was able to experience sort of the plethora of wines that you get to taste that I cannot afford, uh, that you'd get to taste if you're at a nice restaurant in New York. And that, that if I'd gone more of that route, that, that you get to kind of be exposed through, through staff trainings that your beverage director or your psalms team leads you through. Mm. Um, you know, that's really incredible. Uh, but I just, that, I kind of missed out on that. And that's fine. Um, you know, and out here, I mean, I try to go to a lot of tasting rooms. I try, well, not the last year, but, uh, but normally, um, you know, and just, but then I know it kind of gets a little Pinot centric. Um, and I, then I try to branch out from that. And, you know, my wife and I, we both really like wine. We, we went to Portugal for our honeymoon because it checked a lot of boxes and we thankfully got to go before the pandemic. And we're like, we've never taken a long vacation like this. We want to go to a region we've never been. There's wine, there's seafood, there's, it's gentle. Gentle is nice. Let's go there. And um, I had never experienced half those wines before. I had no idea. I mean, you think of Portugal, it's like, oh, port. Yeah, but then pff, the list goes on and on. And I was floored and blown away by, by what they, what existed there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's things like that. I mean, it's been much more sort of, I guess in a nutshell, experiential mm -hmm. than sort of formalized process, mm -hmm. which that's kind of the way I prefer things. Um, I just, it just, it clicks with me better. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, really kind of strong understanding or, or experience in kind of two very very different wine regions, very interesting wine regions in Chile and, and in Oregon. I'm curious from your perspective, tell me the differences. Tell me how they compare and how they contrast between the, 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 two, the two regions. What, what, what are the similarities and, and how do they differ? That's a good question. Um, I say that because like everybody's like, compare and contrast Chile and California. Um, I mean, Chile's 3,000 miles long, so it has, I always describe it as like, you start in the south of Chile, it's like starting in the Willamette Valley. Mayaco, Bio Bio is like the Willamette Valley. You know, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay dominate, it's sparkling. You move up, it's like going south from here. You know, you get a Napa, Mendocino, and all that. Then you get to northern Chile, and it's outer space. It's the Elkida, I mean, it, there's nothing else like it on Earth. I mean, two inches of rain a year, the ocean, 6,500 feet dry pager. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, really, in the last 20 years, I think the similarity is that, and I'm starting to see it now here too, but winemakers in both regions have really begun to move on from sort of the traditional grape varieties of Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, Cabernet and uh, Cabernet, really, um, you know. Cabernet with other things that they then figured out was Carmenere. Um, and b begun to say, well, wait a second, like, we don't have to be confined to the Willamette Valley. We don't have to be confined to Maipo. We can, and we don't have to be confined to these grape varieties or these ways of winemaking. Let's branch out, we can do our own thing. Like this is our own destiny and universe to sort of build in. Um, you know, I, I think here of like all the new AVAs, I mean, from the Rocks Districts to Elkton. I mean, their cr crew work wines down in Elkton is planting Sauvignon Gris. That's awesome. Like I, I didn't even know that existed up here. I first experienced it in Chile. 
they planted it in 1912, but then nobody did anything with it. And I, I really admire in both places kind of, I don't even know what wave of winemakers you'd, I, I'd even kind of categorize in Oregon now. I mean, like I talked about Lynn being kind of that second wave you know, after the David Letts and the Dickie Rass and David Adelsheim's of the world. Then Lynn's, can, I, I don't know what you call or categorize, for lack of a better word, this, this kind of new wave. And I think a lot of it, a lot of them rather are, well, I guess that's always been the case. I was going to say from elsewhere. Uh, heritage winemakers, I, I, maybe that's the wrong word, but I think of like, you know, Jason Lett. You know, he took over from his dad. He's, you know, but he is a really classic example of sitting in both worlds. The progenitor of, you know, Pinot Noir really in Oregon and Pinot Gris. But now Jason's planted Chasala and Milan de Begonia and Trousseau. Nobody would have done that before. Mm -hmm. And I think it gives a lot of credibility to wineries, to having him do it because of his, who his family is and like his history here. Of, I don't want to say giving the green light, but giving encouragement to others to explore beyond their traditional grape varieties. Mm -hmm. I see the same thing in Chile, where you've had these sort of older traditional winemakers be kind of both coaxed out of their sort of standard traditional approaches by a combination of both new wine new new winemakers that have kind of been able to not ha have a chile specific education and been able to travel mm. and go to other parts of the world which didn't really exist but they didn't do before um and then come back to chile and bring that knowledge as well as some you know i think of this one winery di martino and the the winemaker there marcelo ratamol is He's a very interesting man because you look at him, you're like, you totally could just be this like old kind of Chilean. No, he's not even old, um, actually. He just uh, he's not. He's like 45, <laughs> 50. Um, but just kind of this. He's been at the same winery for 26 years, which for older Chilean winemakers, that they bop around a lot to different wineries in Chile. And he hasn't done that. He stayed at Di Martino, but he's also the type that you see like kind of buttoned up in the traditional like Chilean winemaker, you know, like khakis and a blue shirt. And you're like, oh, really? You all wear that? And, um, but then you see him when he's not sort of toeing the line if, in like a Metallica t-shirt. And he's like, I love metal. And I was like, really? And he's like, I love metal. I go to every Metallica concert when they come to Chile, ever. Like they're the greatest band ever. And I'm like, that is not what I expected you to say at, at all. And he has embraced approaching things in new ways, like Amphora aged uh, Cinso. Uh, nobody in Chile was doing that. And then here, Marcelo came and he started doing dry farm Cinso from Itata in an Amphora 10 years ago. And that just, that sign of, connection between the two I, I find really unique and fascinating. And I think each country in its own way has been sort of put in a position to like, you are Pinot country, you are Cabernet country. Oh, you have Carmen Air now. You have Carmen Air now too. Um, and I think winemakers are beginning to say, I don't, I don't have to 
I don't even think, I know winemakers are beginning to say there is a world beyond that. Mm -hmm. And there are grapes beyond that that I want to work with and I want to explore and do things with because there are no rules. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to follow in these, you know, very particular paths to, to make wine mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. There is no right way of doing it. You know, there's just their expression of art. I want to talk about your your job at Fetzer a little bit. Uh, I'm curious about you mentioned that uh, once again you start your job, big announcement, then the COVID, then COVID hits, like everything kind of swirling against you. But I'm curious with the with what you're trying to accomplish with 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 your team. Tell me what the biggest challenges are and what your kind of outlook is. What what, what are you hoping for uh, with this kind of pro small project within a huge brand? I'm hoping that they won't give up on it. I'm hoping that they see the value in it other than the increased margins of having a direct-to-consumer business. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping that they see this as a way to more effectively tell our story and kind of go back to the way that Fetzer was when they had a culinary center that Julia Child came to. You know, it's like they started Bonterra because they had an organic garden in the 80s and they were like, well, why don't we grow our grapes organically? Like that's, and nobody put that on a label then. And they took that risk and they embraced it. And it, look at it now. You know, it's kind of become, you know, America's premier sort of organically grown wine. And, and you know, I think, and I look at it too, I'm like, ah, oh, Bonterra, it's, you know, a supermarket brand. But like in the 80s, nobody did that. That was super questionable to put organic on a label. People would be like, whoa, hippies, like, what are you doing? Like, Somebody has to take that leap. Somebody has to take that jump. But I'm really hoping that they just don't give up on it. Mm -hmm. I'm really hoping that they see the value in not only all the wine things, the, the terroir, the story, our ability to express these varieties from this place, but they see the value in it from a business perspective, but they see the value in it from a storytelling and sort of uh, just a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, our our other wineries are doing this, so it's not like, but how do we do it genuinely? How do we do it authentically? That, I think, is the, the big challenge. Um, you know, and I, and I hope that they're able to take our unique position of being not only a winery, owned by another winery, but also an importer to say, here are a multitude of wines that are, you know, not necessarily one of a kind, but unique enough. And our, there's, I mean, I, I, you go to a wine store and you can find a bunch of different small projects. Particularly if you go to a good, you know, and that's fascinating. Well, let's be part of the conversation. We can do that too. You know, just, just because they're big and we do it this way doesn't mean that we can't focus on the small. And, and get into the details because I think there's a lot of longevity in that and I think that there is I think people want that I think people want to explore we always talk about and this is kind of the corporate line but not even the corporate line but like people talk about customers have moved beyond wanting to buy a good product like Rainforest Alliance or like Certified Sustainable or like uh, fair trade to wanting to support a good company 
And, and I think that's become even more prevalent in the last five years where we're like, well, wait a second, you might make this good product, but like, that's marketing, mm. let's be honest. Are you a good company? Because you can make a good product and do just some really unethical shit. And that's, but you get to mask it by your good product. I think for a variety of reasons, my generation, Gen Z, and even Gen X to a degree, like, we don't really have a patience and tolerance for that anymore. It's like, let's rip the Band-Aid off, man. Like, let's, let's, let's show it for what it is. So it's like, if you're going to be a good company, be a good company. You know? And I'm not, I'm not saying that all B Corps are the best companies and you only should buy from B Corps, but it's like, that's a step in the right direction, at least. It's a third-party accountability, you know, from Patagonia to Ben & Jerry's to um, you know, King Arthur Flower. Like, there's somebody looking over your shoulder mm -hmm. and saying, if you want our support, you know, or A to Z even, like they're B Corp, you know, Sokoblosser. There's somebody looking over your shoulder to say, are you putting your money where your mouth is? Or is this just this marketing ploy and you hope that people don't really look under the, look, look under the covers? Um, so my, my hope is that we're able to continue to tell that story about being a good company through our investment in either in 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 our small projects mm -hmm. and our small farmers and this you know because at the end of the day that we're wine's an agricultural product i mean they farm grapes and i think people forget that because they see it as wine and they're like oh it's a luxury item well that had to come from a vineyard which is farmed like any other agricultural crop but it just is able to sort of transform itself into something that we have considered and created into a luxury item mm -hmm. um and if we can continue to use our sort of, we being Fetzer, Conchitoro, to do two things. Take our, our passion and our expertise and our knowledge and focus it on being a better company through our big projects, but also our small projects that benefit small growers, small producers, et cetera, et cetera, and, and be able to take a wine and tell that story through that. And secondly, take our, take our innovation and our research to combat the effects of what climate change is going to do to not only the wine industry, but everything. And the agricultural industry particularly. Mm -hmm. You know, Chile is, like California, it is in all, almost a perpetual drought. If it doesn't snow in the Andes, just like it doesn't snow in the Sierra, kind of screwed. Um, and there's only so long that that can we can pump water out of the ground and hope it's going to be okay. Um, you know, I look, I had last January, a year ago January, right before the pandemic, I was in Chile, and Conchitoro has a research and innovation center down in uh, Maule, uh, which is kind of, kind of like Umqua. Um, and one of its, they have university students from all over the world that come and do a lot of work on a variety of different topics when it comes to sort of viticulture, enology, production, and you know, they're not looking at like, how do we make wine cheaper and like do all, it's like, okay, how do we look and examine the clones of Cabernet to see which is going to be most resistant for drought conditions? How do we look at the clones of Cabernet and slice and dice that to see which vines are going to thrive better in a, in, in a more saline rich soil because we pumped all the groundwater out and we're left with salt. 
how do we continue to innovate and adapt and, and do research in this industry that, that helps us continue to grow for the next 50 years, 100 years. So we don't just tap it out and be like, well, I guess we just got to uproot everything and go north. Mm -hmm. Because that just has ramifications across. I, I, I don't even know where to start. Um, so I, my hope is that we're able to tell those stories because I don't think it ever trickles down that far or we're able to have that in-depth of a conversation when we sell a bottle of Fetzer. People might look at it and be like, oh, cool, Fetzer, B Corp. Um, they're using less water. That's awesome. And then they forget about it. And they take their reverse meter and they're happy. Well, if we, if we can get down in front of the right people, because a lot of the storytellers and a lot of the advocates and the, the, the sort of, um, uh, what's the word? Um, voices in the industry that, that are able to sort of penetrate furthest into people's minds. Mm -hmm. um, they aren't really interested in having a conversation about Fetzer. Um, or Bonterra for that matter, because they either, they're like, okay, cool, you're doing that, I respect that, that's great. I need to talk about something more interesting. Mm -hmm. I need to talk about something that's, that, that has a great, greater depth to it. Um, I think we have that. We just haven't been able to tell that story because we have, don't have the wines that act as a con, the, the sort of catalyst and conveyor of that story. So my hope is that we are able to continue to have the support to tell that story, to, to you know, tell a better story about biodynamic viticulture and, and what that means and does and how that all you know, coalesces. Uh, and, and about the small projects that might focus on a single, you know, a, a project vineyard that's focused on this clone of Cabernet that is more drought resistant because it's, at that point, it's not really about the wine. It's about what the wine is saying about where our priorities are. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is what we have the opportunity to do because we have the capital compared to small wineries. Mm -hmm. and, and that to me is, that's a force for good. That's a force, that, that is really living into that, that B Corp ethos. Like, you know, it's not all about profit margins, um, you know, but you have to win over the people sometimes with that because we live in America, unfortunately. And that's, that, that seems to just resonate the most. Um, so if you can do both, or at least convince them with that and say, okay, great, this is the story I'm gonna tell then. Mm -hmm. I, that's what I hope for. Yeah. And with Multnomah Wine Studio, obviously you mentioned kind of a, a, a pandemic project, uh, which is a, an interesting reaction to a pandemic to start a business. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm, I'm curious yeah. about, uh, you mentioned kind of the mission and the goal. Tell me about how your how market and growth and, and sort of like how you've kind of foresee it going for you. How, how are you getting a lot of people know about it and, and how far out does, it, does your kind of vision extend for it? I think I've realized now that it, it isn't going to be kind of a flash in the pan sort of, yep, I'm out. I, I do want to keep it going, and I do see a value in being able to. The pandemic has taught us that, I should, I should say this, the pandemic has taught the generation over 50 that you can live and exist in a digital world with, with no major ramifications. Now. Not to say the pandemic didn't have ramifications, but that you don't have to go into the office to do your job. 
You can do it remotely. You don't have to go and physically taste somebody on a bottle of wine or to tell a story. You can do it digitally. And I think this is just amplified what already existed because we were forced to. So my hope is that I'm able to uh, <laughs> be more consistent. Uh, you know, in, in the beginning, like, you know, it, it's it's a side project, so it's like it's there. It's always in the back of your mind, and you're you're thinking like, uh, oh, I, I gotta get to that. I gotta get to that. But I need to make it a more regular occurrence. Like, okay, every four weeks, this is coming out, and and but that takes dedicating time to it. And you know, I've probably done eight offerings, and I want to keep it going. I want to get it in a consistent rhythm where people know what to expect. And you know, I, my mailing list is about 100 people. It's not large by any means, but I eventually would like to take that and, and, and sort of lean it into a more regular occurrence. Like I have a regular occurrence, I have regular orders, I expand and be able to ship to other states and not totally rely on the Newburgh mailroom for all my shipping needs um, outside of Oregon. And, um, but I eventually would like to get a little space that allows me to not have a retail wine shop with a bunch of inventory, but just a very select like, hey, this is our mailing list, this is what we do. We do a little bit of classes here. We do a, you know, you can come in, you can taste what's on our current pack, sign up, taste it, go explore. Like it, it I remember we were in Portugal and we there's this um, cherry liqueur that they make called Jinjinha, and which I'd never had before, it's super delicious. And, um, the store that sold it was tiny. I mean, it was like 10 by 10. And I was like, well, that's awesome. Like, I don't need a giant retail space to be able to sell wines in retail because it's all done online. Like, I just, but I need a space to help tell people about what I'm doing. If I could do that on the Multnomah Wine, the Multnomah Village Strip, that would be my ideal, you know? Th that's kind of a, a pipe dream. I have no idea. I don't know. I'm not. I know what space I want, but there's somebody there. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, you know. But I, I also think about like, okay, well, you know, the other wine store in town, like they've been going 17 years. Like, how much longer are they going to be there? And I want to be ready when they close. I don't want to force them out of business by any means, but like, I want to be ready when that opportunity arises um, to be like, okay, I can jump on that. Um, and I've always. I've, I've always liked kind of, I don't really, a friend of mine owns a detail business um, and he's like, oh, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He's like, you're an entrepreneur. I'm like, I don't really feel like one because I'm not really, I, I, I don't like using that term for myself because it doesn't, I still have a full-time job. Like this is, this is a side project. I'd like to evolve it into something where I'm more entrepreneurial. Where, where I'm able to kind of invest in it more and, and it becomes something that I can eventually say, I'm gonna do this full time. I, or, or I'm able to sort of take this and, and leverage it with uh, consulting or, or um, you know, even just live digital tastings or, or mm -hmm. other things like that. Like, I, when I was a kid, I grew up in a nursery and my parents let me grow gourds and I would take those gourds and I would sell them at my camp, at my elementary school. And like, and they would put, it was like 25 cents for like four gourds or like a dollar for four gourds. And I would take those and I'd buy Legos with them. And I, I've always had this desire to just 
cultivate something in my own view mm -hmm. instead of kind of having to do it for someone else. Um, even if it's with all the best intentions that that company is doing X, Y, Z, because, you know, I, I just, that's, that's a passion, and this is kind of a step in that direction mm -hmm. to just kind of take this and, and make it my own and take something that I've been passionate about for the last decade and worked in for the last decade and say, okay, I can, I can do this too. I, I can tell my own story and I can show people wines from all over and I know it's nothing unique. Like this is not a unique idea by any means, nor is it, nor is the way I'm approaching it like completely unlike anything else anybody's ever done. There are other businesses like this, but they're not mine, mm -hmm. and I get to do this with my own voice, mm -hmm. and 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 build it into something that I don't know what it looks like. I don't I don't have that like this is exactly what I want. Mm -hmm. This is what I want to work toward. But I don't I I want to grow it, and I want to and I want to build it into something that that allows me to just tell more of the stories that I do feel really passionate about. Um, you know, I think about there's one wine I had in in my pack from called Beyond Organic, and it was a biodynamic producer out of Spain, and I, I cannot remember the name of the winery off the top of my head. Um, uh, I remember the label, <laughs> and as, I feel like that happens a lot. It's like, I know what the label looks like, but I can't remember what it says. Um, it was a sparkling, and uh, they are a family who's owned this 300-ish, 350 acres for 17 generations. That's remarkable. They're in Spain, in, in, uh, I think in Mencia. And it's like, I've never heard of this wine. I've never come across it. I'm sure you know people obviously sell it here, but like, I haven't seen this on a restaurant list. Like, I want to tell their story. I want you know, it's personal too. Like, I get to look into it, learn more, educate myself, and then pass it along. And maybe I only tell 100 people. Maybe only six of those read it. But it's a start. Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of a two-part question for us. We're going to kind of broaden out a little bit here. Um, biggest changes you've seen uh, in the Oregon wine industry as a, as a sort of a part of it slash consumer slash observer, um, and uh, with us coming out of the pandemic, uh, hopefully soon. Uh, what do you see for the future of the industry? What are big, sort of biggest changes to now, and, and what comes next? I think the biggest change. I mean, I kind of talked about it earlier, but it's outside money coming into the state from everywhere, and the, people in the Oregon wine industry are very intensely passionate about the Oregon wine industry, um, and to, that's an understatement. Um, and I, I think the, biggest change is, is just how that outside money might begin to alter the narrative that, that has been crafted over the last 60 years. Um, you know, and, and what does that look like? And, and you know, it's not that change is bad by any means, but it's just money can have a very corrupting influence, and I just hope it doesn't. You know, I, I hope that we don't see 99 through Dundee become a new Napa. Uh, you know, I know some people want that because they're like, hey, I'm in it for the real estate. And I, I get that, but 
I, I, there is a, a what's the, how do I say this? Um, I fall victim to this, and, and I think we all do. There is a beauty in the naive, or excuse me, there is a beauty in the small, and that's, but that's kind of naive, you know? But, you know, I think we fall for that because it's romantic. It's idyllic. And, but that's not really the way the world works, um, unfortunately. And, you know, I just, I just hope that, you know, it's like, I don't want to see like Amazon move in here. It's like, oh, Jeff Bezos has another pet project. Like, I'm just, whatever. You know, a $30 million winery? Cool. I bought Whole Foods. You know, or, or people like that just because they can. Mm -hmm. I think that disturbs the ability for many of the people here to build businesses and to build their own histories and their own stories if they're having to fight against money that, that they just, you know, it's like, okay, do I take it alone? I'm under the thumb of the bank because I want to build a winery? Or, you know, you know I, am I stuck trying to battle the multimillionaires of the world in for confined space? And that's only going to get harder and harder and harder and harder, and the people with money are going to win out because they had it. And I worry about that. I think that's, that's, that's the biggest change that, that I'm seeing, and I just I worry about where it's going to go and how it's going to evolve. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I don't know what the solutions are. I, I really don't. Um, I, I, that is, that is, that is, it is not my, I, that is not my area of expertise, but I, I just, I, I hope it doesn't become too divisive mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an already very hotly divisive world. Um, you know, this is something we're all passionate about. Let's not fight over it too intensely or, or lament too intensely the sort of change that is happening that is inevitable, because mm -hmm. change is. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, for being small, and many of the winers here are small and work on, you know, with a very dedicated, passionate group of people to see everything through day to day. And, you know, they're not, you know, you know bankrolled by big outside money, um, you know, whoever it may be, whether it's the Evanstons or Barbara Banke or, you know, the Bollinger family or, or whoever it may be. They were incredibly nimble and adaptive during this pandemic to say, hey, we can make all this happen and we can keep our business rolling and keep our people employed and, and roll with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I know this isn't Oregon, but I was just, I, 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 Heights Vineyard, it came to my knowledge that they didn't let anybody off. Mm -hmm. But then again, this is, this is the catch 22 of that. I'm like, oh, that's really admirable. They didn't let anybody go during the pandemic. Oh, wait a second, they're owned by a billionaire. I hope it doesn't come to that where only the places that are bankrolled by those people are able to sort of continue to support what they're doing, which is something we're all passionate about. And but it is it was really a testament to the ability for wineries that aren't bankrolled by multimillionaires to stay alive, be nimble, be innovative, which the winer it the wine industry sorely needed and their ability to take it online and say, I'm gonna adapt to this and I'm gonna thrive. And I I've seen that 
all over. I mean, from, you know, I, I, you name the vineyards, but it's been really a, a, a breath of, it has been, it has been encouraging to see that for the most part, nobody fell, I haven't seen any wineries go out of business that I'm, and I, I, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, like, please let me know, but I, I don't know of any um, that have gone out of business, which is very encouraging uh, because this was a, ma you know, major impact on the industry that our wine or wineries here rely on, the hospitality and restaurant industry everywhere, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, just their ability to continue to produce wine in a very challenging environment, mm -hmm. to say the very least. So in addition to uh, your work, uh, Fetzer, your work uh, at Multiple Wine Studio, uh, anything else in the future you're looking forward to? What, what, what comes next for you? What's, what's your future look like? I'm having a baby in August. Well, congratulations. So, <laughs> well, I'm That's, not. My wife is, but... <laughs> slightly less big news. Slightly less big news, but we're having a baby in August, so that's... that's uh, I don't even know. That's just... That's thrilling and exciting and, 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 and scary and, 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 and just a whole new adventure all in one. And I think the thing that, that is really encouraging me to it is... Getting into wine is kind of a black hole. The world of babies are, is is an inc it, that is like a supernova. That is like the worst black hole ever, um, and I'm really excited that I, I really hope that we don't kind of fall victim to all the way it should be done and like oh don't do this don't because everybody has an opinion and it's like no I think we're just going to try to do our own thing and it's like. You know, I think about when it comes to travel and like taking your baby places. Like, let's go camping. Like, I remember I w my parents took me camping at like ten months old. Like, bathed me in a like like nursery pot that had like a uh, garbage sack. And nowadays, people are like, oh, how that's terrible. But it's like, hey, you work with what you got, and I was fine. I mean, it worked out. But you know, I'm I'm really excited for that. I'm really excited for that that change and that growth and that that that. Uh, challenge mm -hmm. that that comes with that and I'm an only child um, you know and I've never really been around small kids or, and, and babies so it's like it's frightening but it's um <laughs> I, a friend of mine who has his like a four-month five-year-old five, five son he's like I'll put it this way you're awake for like 30 hours and you're just like and then you pass out and then you wake up and like your dad like instincts have kicked on and that like the time that you passed out and you're like I know what to do now and I was like I really hope it's that simple I really hope that's what happens but um, that's happening um, you're traveling a lot uh, yes um, I don't want to do that as much like <clears throat> I'm really happy to be home in Oregon um, <clears throat> You know, over the last 10 years, I've gone to Chile like 30 times. Um, <clears throat> Argentina, a dozen or so, all over the country. And it's, I'm, <clears throat> I've been incredibly, incredibly privileged and fortunate to be able to do that. And it's provided me a, 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 a bevy of experiences that I'm, I'm lucky to have had. And, and, and they have, you know, been able to fill me with a variety of stories and knowledge and, and a whole host of things, but 
I'm really excited to be kind of just, and the pandemic has really kind of exacerbated it. Like, I didn't get tired of being at home. I kind of enjoyed it. I was like, I kind of like working from home, which was a big change from where I was <clears throat> in 2014, you know, seven years ago when I was like, ah, oh, I can't stand this. Like, it's driving me crazy. How do I make all this work? And um, I hope that allows me to just kind of redouble my efforts and focus more on the Wine Studio, grow that, mm -hmm. and and see where it takes me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, continue this project with Fetzer and hope that that has legs, mm -hmm. or rather, get those legs to run because mm -hmm. it has legs. I just they need to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, my wife and I like to travel. You know, and we we, but we're not the type that wants to go. We just want to go somewhere and be gentle. Uh, you know, and if we can get out and travel with a baby and go places and, um, you know, go to these wine regions, like I, I keep thinking about the Okanagan in Canada, which is an endlessly fascinating area. But like, you can go up there and camp and like take a baby. And I just, that's very exciting. And like to be able to share with our daughter our passion for travel, for experience, for getting outside of our box and but also for the land for geology for for plants for agriculture growing things like that is a very exciting potential mm -hmm. and 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 future um, um next year so like my dad is a german teacher you know he my grandparents my great-grandparents were german uh they moved here from you know kiel in northern germany in 1880s and um my dad is, you know, there are not a lot of German language programs around, but my dad got his degree in German language and literature. He's a German teacher. And, but I've never had the, and I've heard about it my whole life, but I've never had the opportunity to go to Germany with him ever. And I'm thinking like, okay, I'm having a kid. I'm getting older. I'm an only child. <clears throat> my parents are getting older. My dad's getting older. He's, we're going to be able to go to, we're going to try to go to Germany next year and like take our daughter. And like, that is, very, very, very exciting. And just go park it in the Mosul. And I'm like, cool. I get to experience this with my dad. That's a lifelong sort of excitement. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's Riesling. Like that is, and I get to, my daughter, my wife, get to, like this is, that is, I'm super excited about that. Mm -hmm. But then again, it goes back to that, that experiential hands-on touch feel mm -hmm. sort of way of learning that I like. Mm -hmm and that resonates with me. And I, I think that all comes back to having a background in theater. Like, you can't just read a book in theater and be like, I get it now. You have to do and touch and be vulnerable and, 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 and be willing to put yourself out there and, and not know what the outcome is going to be. And, you know, put yourself in somebody else's hands for a while and see what happens and, and trust that. And that has certainly, I'm excited to do that again because we've certainly moved away from that because of the pandemic, which I get. But um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to all that. Mm -hmm. All right. So all the questions that I have for you today, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, covered a lot. We did. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, all I would say is like, I don't know. Break out of the break out of the 
be willing to be vulnerable. Embrace that. And I mean, that goes with drinking wines too. Like there is more out there than Pinot Noir. I love Pinot Noir. I love it, but like there's more out there than Pinot Noir and California Cab, you know, or Chardonnay or, or in Pinot Gris. Like, you know, there's a resurgence of Chardonnay here. Cool, there are other things going on. Go explore Southern Oregon. Go explore the Umqua. Go explore the Rogue, Elkton, you know, go explore Chile. And, and I, one of my favorite things that I like to do is I brown bag Chilean wines and I taste them next to you know, Chardonnay or Pinot because nobody thinks those wines should come from there because Cabernet only. Mm-hmm. And I like trying to move people beyond their biases with wine. And you know, if Multnomah Wine Studio can do that, if I can do that with Fetzer, if this project, the Oregon Wine Archive can, with the plethora of absolute legends and, and just incredible people that you've interviewed, and I'm very humbled that I get to be part of this, um, are doing, just, you know, continue to, I, I just, for the people that watch this, drink outside of the box, you know, just don't fall victim to just what marketing and corporate entities say you should drink, you know. You know, there are a lot of, you know, the multimillionaires don't need more money. And the, the multi-million dollar wine industry and, and some of the folks that control it don't need more money. Like, there are other people doing really interesting projects. Go drink their wine. Like it. Thank you so much Thank for you, time Rich. today, for your stories. My pleasure. For joining us, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. My pleasure, absolutely. Thank you both. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.